Hello and welcome to the Turkish History Podcast. Episode 35. The Great Seljuk Empire. Religion. Before we begin, if you have been enjoying this podcast, I'd like to ask you to please subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this podcast. It would mean a lot to me and would help more people find the podcast. Thank you for listening. So last time, we discussed the economy of the Great Seljuk Empire, which was a subject we really didn't delve into in the narrative, but is of course critical to understanding Seljuk history. And today, we're going to dive in more detail into a subject we have discussed before, religion. And this subject, of course, above all, revolves around the messy relationship between the Seljuk dynasty and the Abbasid Caliphate. Now, if you'll recall, when the Seljuks swept down into Khorasan and Iran from Central Asia, they were essentially refugees who were very ill at ease in these new lands that they had come to. They were steppe nomads, wild Turkmen tribes led by a dynasty of obscure and provincial origins, who, though nominally Muslim, were largely unfamiliar with Islam and the broader customs of the Muslim world. And as they then conquered and indeed negotiated their way into power, religion began to play an increasingly important role in legitimizing their rule. Remember, that Tuchrul was not really a great barbarian conqueror on horseback. He was more of a diplomat on horseback, determinedly working within the existing political system of the world he found himself in. And the religion of Islam was crucial to this. By becoming a proper Sunni ruler, he was making his alien Turkish dynasty less alien to the settled elites of the Muslim world he made them acceptable overlords, despite, you know, their hordes of Turkmen. And as he pitched his new dynasty to the elites of the Muslim world, he continuously presented himself not just as a Muslim ruler, but as a deeply orthodox Sunni ruler. In essence, Tuchrul pitched himself as the restorer of order and Sunni orthodoxy at a time when Iran was ruled by the Shia Buyids and their emirate was falling into a sort of chaotic collapse. And critically, he pitched these two things as actually being the same thing. Why is there disorder? Because Iran is ruled by heretics. And I am the man to stop that. I will restore proper Sunni rule, and I will end this petty squabbling and war. Orthodox Sunnism therefore became incredibly important to the dynasty at the very beginning of its rule as a way to legitimize the conquest of the Muslim world by people who were basically outsiders to that world. Being rigorous Sunnis was a part of making the Seljuks and their wild tribesmen less alien to the elites of the settled world, people they needed if they were going to convince their way into power. This ultimately culminated in Tuchrul being invited into Baghdad by the Caliph and being proclaimed the king of East and West, the man to not only end the local disorder, 
but to end the general disorder that had prevailed in the Islamic world since the anarchy at Samarra. The man to re-knit the Muslim world and restore order and Sunni orthodoxy everywhere. This then really began the relationship between the Seljuk and Abbasid dynasties, which the older primary sources all describe as one of mutual support. Indeed, vigorous Sunnism is sort of the hallmark of Seljuk propaganda. And on some level, this is true. Both sides really did need each other. As fundamentally steppe barbarians in the eyes of the civilized Arabs and Persians, the Seljuks really depended on the caliphs for legitimation. Recognition by the caliphs was critical to getting the elites of the Muslim world, the nobles, judges, civil officials, and so on, to accept Seljuk rule. It was how steppe power was in essence laundered to make them proper Islamic rulers. The support of the caliph was also critical to the Seljuk dynasty presenting itself as the defender of Sunni orthodoxy, which, as we said, was a key component of the regime's legitimacy. Furthermore, marriage into the Abbasid dynasty was also an important part of legitimizing Seljuk rule. The Seljuks had, of course, arisen from an obscure and lowly-ranked Ohuz tribe, and marriage into the Abbasid dynasty not only created sultans with Abbasid blood, but the act of marriage itself demonstrated that the ancient and venerable Abbasid dynasty recognized the upstart Seljuks as equals. And on the Abbasid side, remember that it was the Seljuks who had defeated the Shia Buyids, releasing the Abbasid dynasty from its virtual imprisonment by the Shia emirs. And on a more material level, the Seljuks did in general defer to the caliph's temporal rule in Baghdad and its environs. And more importantly, they made sure to provide the Abbasid caliphs with funds in addition to the traditional markers of respect and deference. We have ample evidence in the sources of Seljuk sultans sending sizable gifts to Baghdad, in essence, giving the Abbasids a cut of the proceeds of conquest. And across the empire, the Seljuks ordered the khutbah to be read in the name of the Abbasid caliphs, not in the name of the Shia Fatimid caliphs in Egypt. This expanded the reach of the caliph's suzerainty, and indeed his power. Remember, as we discussed in our episode on the state, the ulama, the religious establishment across the empire, was in essence a third branch of government, and one that was, in many ways, under the control of the Abbasid caliphs. It was the caliphal authorities who appointed the caddies, the judges, with the sultans merely confirming them. And throughout the Seljuk period, we see not only the rise of the military men as we discussed earlier, but the rise of the ulama, the community of Islamic scholars. As illiterate and perhaps barely Muslim Turkish soldiers took over much of the temporal authority, the law, the administration of justice, fell more and more into the hands of the religious establishment. Indeed, the Seljuk period is largely seen by modern historians as starting both a Sunni revival and the homogenization and ordering of Sunni religious and legal practice, though there are important caveats here that we will get to shortly. In short, 
most Islamic sources follow the Seljuk line of Sunni revivalism and mutual support between the Abbasid caliphs and the Seljuk sultans. But as we have already seen, this picture of happy cooperation between the sultans and the caliphs is not entirely accurate. However much Seljuk propaganda wanted to present the sultans as loyal servants of the caliphs, righteously restoring Sunni orthodoxy and re-knitting the lands of Islam under the proper form of the true faith, the reality was far, far messier. To start with, there was a great deal of tension between the Seljuk and the Abbasid dynasties. Remember, the Seljuks were clearly the senior partner, the ones with the soldiers and the Turkmen tribes. They had the military force to do basically whatever they wanted. Their powerful steppe armies were far and away the most powerful military force in the Islamic world, even while they lacked the cultural and religious legitimacy that the Abbasids provided. So even as both sides needed each other, they also feared each other. Seljuk sultans always worried about the expansion of caliphal power and that maybe a caliph would try to recognize another claimant and thus spark a civil war. And for their part, the Abbasid caliphs always wondered if perhaps the Seljuk dynasty would finish them off and claim the caliphate for themselves. But while the Muslim world was ready for Turkish sultans, it wasn't quite ready for Turkish caliphs yet. And it would not be until the days of the Ottomans that Turkish Sunni rulers felt ready to make that final jump. Indeed, only Melik Shah, the most cooked Seljuk sultan of all, seems to have contemplated doing away with the Abbasids. And the result was, of course, his assassination. The reality was that due to their barbarian origins, it was simply not possible for the Seljuks to do away with the Abbasids. And so the two dynasties existed in a tense and somewhat unhappy alliance, smiling through gritted teeth as the propagandists painted a picture of happy cooperation and mutual support. And so now, we're going to dive into all of the ways that reality was divorced from the picture presented by Seljuk propaganda, how there was a lot more going on than the strident Sunni orthodoxy and mutual support with the Abbasid caliphs that the propaganda presents to us. In short, what the relationship between the Seljuk sultans and the Abbasid caliphs was actually like, and how religion actually worked in the Seljuk period. So to start, as discussed, while official propaganda always paints a happy portrait of the relationship between the caliphs and the sultans, the reality was far different. As we saw in the narrative, the nadir was probably the caliph having Melik Shah assassinated. But that wouldn't even turn out to be the last time that the forces of the sultan and the caliph would clash. In later Seljuk history, which we're not really going to cover as we will be focused on Anatolia, one of the Seljuk sultans, Mahmud, will essentially go to war with the caliph al-Mustarshid and al-Mustarshid and his son and successor would then dive right into Turkish politics, allying with other Seljuk sultans against others as they attempted to break the Abbasid dynasty away from Seljuk domination. And even when things didn't get that bad, 
incidents constantly bubbled up. As we briefly discussed in the narrative, the Caliph al-Muqtadi even expelled the Turkish soldiers accompanying his Seljuk princess wife, who was Melik Shah's daughter. Reportedly, he mistreated his wife so badly that Melik Shah was forced to take her back to Esfahan. Hardly a good sign for the relationship between the two dynasties. And the Seljuks in turn trod on the Caliph's authority in other subtle ways. Tukhrul began the practice of using the title Rukun al-Din, supporter of the faith, which was a traditional title of the Caliph, never born by a secular ruler before him. This implied not that Tukhrul was a viceroy of the Caliph, a person to whom the Caliph had delegated power as the political fiction of the classic Perso-Islamic model demanded, but as the man upholding the faith himself. And the sultans would also appoint a shihna to Baghdad itself, that is a religious official to represent the sultan and sometimes actually run religious affairs in the city. This, of course, was seen as intolerable by the caliphs, as it demonstrated their own practical impotence. The caliphs would then respond to this by claiming the right to enforce the sharia in the city itself, often by outflanking the Seljuks to the right. They would enforce a stricter understanding of the sharia in the city as a way to uphold their authority. For example, in the narrative, we saw al-Muqtadi enforcing sumptuary laws on non-Muslims, and he also ordered the wine poured out in the markets of the city. It's not a coincidence that this was occurring during his conflict with Nizamul Mulk and Malik Shah, as the court tried to impinge on his power and even contemplated making Baghdad the capital. Meanwhile, Seljuk sultans would interfere in the choosing of the caliph's officials. If you'll recall in the narrative, Melik Shah and Nizam al-Mulk forced al-Muqtadi to do away with his favorite vizier. This was also totally common, as the Seljuk state tried to get its claws into the caliph's own household. Part of this, of course, was also marrying the two dynasties together, Seljuk sultans taking Abbasid wives and Seljuk sultans forcing Seljuk wives upon the caliphs. This was always resented by the Abbasids, who understood that the attempts to produce caliphs with Seljuk lineage was a way to undermine the independence of their dynasty, and in their darkest fears, perhaps to lay the ground for doing away with it. So all in all, in ways both big and small, the relationship between these two dynasties was incredibly tense and sometimes even violent. And though the Islamic sources and Seljuk propaganda always present the Seljuk sultans as personally pious, we do get indications in some sources that a lot of that was for show or was in fact cynically adopted. Now, this is not widely found in the sources, which again, tend to generally present Seljuk propaganda. But indications of a less than totally sincere adherence to Sunni orthodoxy do sort of slip through the cracks. Remember, the first Seljuk sultans, Tukhrul and Alparslan, were products of the steppe world who had been raised as steppe nomads, not men with a classical Islamic education. Tukhrul in particular probably had a very thin knowledge of Islam before he entered Iran, at which point he was in his early 40s. 
The Suriani Christian chronicler Bar Hebreus writes that the chief Qadi of Baghdad related to him that, When I was sent on an embassy to Tuhrul, I wrote a private letter to Baghdad, in which I described his rule and his mercilessness, and how he prayed his prayers as a matter of form, and not through fear of Allah. And there are numerous references to Al-Barslan getting raucously drunk, a popular step pastime, but one not seen favorably by the Islamic scholars. So in many ways, it seems that the Seljuk adoption of Islam, in particular the rigorous Sunnism of their propaganda, does seem to be a bit cynical. And furthermore, despite Seljuk propaganda, it's also apparent that not all Seljuk sultans or Seljuk elites were totally strident in their orthodox Sunnism in other ways. Now remember, the Seljuk dynasty took upon itself the mantle of the upholders of Sunni orthodoxy, which of course meant persecution of minority religions and the Shia. Nizam ul-Mulk says approvingly in his Siyasetname, In the days of Mahmud and Masud and Tuhrul and Al-Barslan, no Zoroastrian or Jew or Shia would have dared to appear in public place or to present himself before a Turk. But there are a lot of indications that the Seljuk dynasty was, in practice, actually a bit more tolerant than the propaganda would have us believe. Yes, the Seljuks of course insisted that the khutbah be read in the name of the sultan and the Abbasid caliph. We saw this over and over again in the narrative. But that was sort of an official thing, the key marker of sovereignty. On the ground, the Seljuks appear to have been far less strident. Remember in the narrative how Tukhrul and Ibn Muslimah had both declared the Mihna, the official persecution of the Shia, as part of their partnership? Well, if you'll recall, Tukhrul didn't actually implement the persecution. It was an official thing that he declared, yeah, but he didn't actually order the lynching of the Shia or anything like that. In other words, he approached the whole thing incredibly cynically, as a way to enhance his power. And this is sort of a template. We even see some Shia authors writing approvingly of the Seljuk dynasty. One author, Abd al-Jalil, even writes that the Seljuk dynasty showed favor to the imami, or Twelver Shia community, even providing pensions to its leaders and the descendants of Ali. More strikingly, after his conquest of the largely Shia city of Aleppo, Tutush appears to have ordered the mosque to be constructed with Shia inscriptions on its minaret, which can still be seen today. The other region of the empire that had a lot of Shia was the east, and there, as well, we see Seljuk tolerance of the Shia. In the largely Shia region of northern Afghanistan, the Seljuk governor appears to have spearheaded the repair of the Shia shrine of Hazrat Ali. And when he conquered Balkh, Melik Shah made sure to make elaborate presents to the powerful Shia nobles of Balkh and Transoxiana. And throughout Iran in the east, local Shia elites, men of means, built shrines and mausolea. This must have been done with Seljuk approval. There are even mentions of powerful Shia bureaucrats hailing from the east, even if the top ranks were closed to non-Sunnis. So while Seljuk propaganda and Nizam ul-Mulk insist on the vigorous Sunnism of the Seljuks, reality was far more mixed. 
it seems that tolerance of the Shia, at least where it was beneficial to the House of Seljuk, was mixed with persecution. And I think we should actually see this mixed on-and-off tolerance as part of the generally cynical way the Seljuks appear to have approached Islam. Where it was useful, they would persecute the Shia, but where this would be counterproductive, they would not, and indeed would often support the Shia in such regions when it was useful to them. So a much more mixed view than that of the official Seljuk propaganda, which basically paints them as Sunni fanatics. We see a similar story in the conflict among the Madhabs, that is the school of Sunnism, Mezhep in Turkish. See, Sunnism is not monolithic. It is divided among four Madhabs, or schools. These are the Hanafi, which is followed in Turkey today, the Maliki, the Shafi, and the Hanbali schools. Though at the Seljuk time and in the Seljuk domains, there were only three schools, the Hanafi, the Shafi, and the Hanbali. Now, the differences between these schools are somewhat esoteric. Basically, it's about how you should interpret and apply the Sharia, coupled with somewhat different theological and philosophical points of view. But we should not make too much of these differences. Indeed, they mean very, very little to believers on the ground. Basically, the differences are things that really only concern religious and legal scholars, people who are asked to opine on what the Sharia ought to say in a given situation, or on some philosophical question. Remember, Islam is simultaneously a religion centered around belief and the worshipper's personal relationship with the divine, like Christianity, and a legalistic faith that sets out various rules and regulations governing all aspects of life, like Judaism. The difference among the Madhabs really go to that second aspect of Islam, how the religious law, the Sharia, ought to be applied. As such, the differences between the Madhabs really aren't of much interest to average Muslims. It really only concerns religious scholars and judges. But therefore, this is deeply and intimately connected to how the Seljuk state's legal system worked, something that we briefly discussed in our episode on the state. If you'll recall from that episode, in essence, the judiciary was a separate branch of the government but one only barely under the control of the sultans. The religious jurists would apply the sharia, which in essence functioned as the law of the state governing day-to-day life. Things like familial law, commercial law, criminal law, civil law, and so on. There wasn't really a legislative function of the state as we would think of it today. There was no legislature. There was no civil code. There was only the sharia. This is sort of a huge deal if you think about it. So much of what our modern states do is make laws. And while the sultans could issue firmans, that is, orders and decrees that ordered or forbade certain things, at its core, the actual law was kind of outside the control of the state. The question, therefore, was really, who is going to apply the law, and how are they going to interpret it? Because we must remember, that as a practical matter, there isn't just one sharia. It's how you interpret it that makes a huge, huge difference. So promoting jurists of one school over another was a key way that a ruler could influence the application of law. Now, some of these jurists and scholars would serve as qadis, that is, as religious judges. 
The Kadis usually came from the nobility or from the urban bourgeoisie classes and would be trained in a madrasa. A madrasa is basically a school, a school focused on teaching Islamic theology and law and philosophy. And these schools would of course be home to teachers and jurists, religious scholars. Other scholars would serve at court, advising the sultan himself. Together with the Kadis, these people, the learned religious scholars, the jurists and theologians, formed the religious establishment, the ulama. The ulama were essentially both theologians and lawyers, and functioned honestly like a religious bar association in many ways. And who was appointed to these posts, as Kadis, as the scholars in the madrasas, as advisors to court? was of course incredibly important in deciding the conflict among the madhabs, in deciding what the law would be and how it would be applied. Now the power of appointment of the Qadis and the jurists theoretically lay with the caliph, though the Seljuk sultan and his officials had to approve the appointments. This was a key lever for the Seljuk state to influence who applied the law and which school's law prevailed. But there were other ways to favor one school or another, most importantly, through founding and patronizing madrasas. If you favor madrasas that educate jurists in your preferred school and don't favor rival schools, then you're going to ultimately get more jurists who agree with you. This was a key way that the sultans could influence the pool of jurists and therefore get more people who agreed with them on the bench. Now, the Seljuk's favorite school was the Hanafi Madhab. The Hanafi school was the school predominantly found in Transoxiana when they entered the region as refugees. They then carried this school west. And indeed, Hanafism is today the school of Sunnism found in Turkey, as well as being the predominant school in Syria, the Levant, and Iraq. This is in fact a key legacy of the Seljuks. But aside from proximity, the Seljuks like that Hanafism is in general very deferential to the secular ruler, and it is particularly lax on who qualifies as a Muslim. It requires no knowledge of the Quran or the Sunnah, or keeping with any Islamic practices, and maintains that reciting and believing in the Shahada is the only requirement to be a Muslim. This makes it the perfect fit for Turks, whose knowledge of Islam might be very shaky, and who also want religious scholars and qadis who defer to the ruler. And the traditional Seljuk sources, the Seljuk propaganda, of course paints the Seljuk as rabid and militant supporters of Hanafism. This means building Hanafi madrasas to educate scholars in the Hanafi school and making sure that Hanafi judges were appointed. And there is a great deal of truth to this. We see Hanafis appointed everywhere, even in areas where there was no meaningful Hanafi presence before the coming of the Seljuks, places like Syria and Iraq. And this era was in general an era of homogenization and formalization of Sunnism, which was also a key legacy of the Seljuks. By building large numbers of madrasas and seeking to standardize the religious education along Hanafi lines, the Seljuks, in essence, fostered a Sunni revivalism that saw the religious establishment become both more powerful and more homogenous. There is even some evidence of truly militant Hanafism. In one instance, 
a Hanafi Qadi in Damascus attempted to declare that the followers of the other madhabs were infidels and had to pay the jizya. But of course, this is not the whole story. See, prior to the rise of the Seljuks, Hanafism was not the school favored by the Abbasid caliphs, who tended to support the Hanbali madhab. The Hanbali school, today most famously supported by the Saudis, is less deferential to the secular ruler and is a bit stricter both in who constitutes a Muslim and in the rules of legal interpretation. For an Abbasid caliph, trying to gain power and influence over sultans and emirs, it was, of course, a preferable interpretation. And separate from both, in the East in particular, the Shafi school seems to have had a large number of adherents. The Shafis tended to be a bit more open to mystical forms of Islam, Sufism, and promoters of the theological doctrine of Ashariism, whereas the Hanafis tended to support the theological doctrine of Maturidism. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of these theological doctrines, but they basically deal with both the interpretation of the texts of Islam and the question of free will, the role of reason, and so on. The important thing to note for our purposes is that they are different not the actual nature of their differences. So throughout the Seljuk era, we do see continued conflict among the Madhabs. And while the Seljuks of course favored the Hanafis, they weren't as rigidly dogmatic about it as the propaganda would have you believe. In particular, the Seljuk relationship with the Shafi school seems to have been, in many ways, pretty cordial. The first Qadi appointed to Damascus by the Seljuks was in fact a Shafi, and one of the largest networks of madrasas in the east of the empire was a Shafi network. Shafis could also be found in the highest ranks of the Seljuk court, though they would occasionally be purged in favor of the Hanafis. The relationship with the Hanbalis was a bit more tense. Likely, both because the distance between Hanbaliism and Hanafism is greater than the distance between Shafism and Hanafism, and because of the ever-present tension with the Abbasid caliphs. But nevertheless, the overall picture is in fact one of toleration, albeit a toleration laced with tension. Even the Hanafi-favoring Nizam ul-Mulk writes, The policy of the sultans and fairness require that we do not incline towards one madhab more than another. It is more fitting for us to uphold the sunnah than to ignite fitna. He then goes on to note how Baghdad is heavily Hanbali, being as it was the seat of the caliphate, and how as a practical matter Hanafism could not be imposed there. So yet again, as with their treatment of the Shia, we see that while the Seljuks certainly had a side that they would promote, they were not overly dogmatic. They were above all practical, and indeed cynical, rulers and were more than willing to be tolerant on religious matters when it was required or beneficial. One interesting thing to note about religion in the Seljuk Empire is the general tolerance and indeed promotion of Sufism. Sufis are Islamic mystics, people who focus not on the application of religious law in the Sharia, but on the other part of Islam, the relationship between the human and the divine. Sufis can be either Sunni or Shia, and generally organize themselves as followers of a particular holy man, called a pir or a sheikh. Sometimes this might evolve into a religious order of a sort, which could often be quite secretive. Because of this, 
and because they often have a generally dim view of the legalistic religious establishment, Sufis have often been seen with suspicion by particularly orthodox scholars and rulers. So it is interesting to note that despite their propaganda claims to be vigorous Sunnis, the Seljuks were in fact totally okay with the Sufis. Indeed, leading Sufis appear to have been patronized by the Seljuk court. This might be connected to the nature of Turkish belief and conversion. As I said in prior episodes, the Turks likely were originally brought into Islam in large part through wandering Sufi mystics, spiritual preachers who came to the steppe world in order to teach and convert the tribes. And their mystical way of approaching the religion probably made a lot more sense to illiterate people familiar with Tengriism and shamanism than dry lectures about religious law and philosophical arguments about the nature of free will by educated scholars. Sufism, therefore, seems to have been quite popular among the Turks. And so under the Seljuks, we see not only the toleration of the Sufis, but indeed the promotion of Sufism. In particular, the order of the followers of a sheikh named Abu Sayyid. Sheikhs and peers were given pensions and grants, shrines were built and restored, and Sufi mystics could be found at court counseling the sultans, emirs, and even bureaucrats. Even Nizam ul-Mulk writes in his Siyaset Name of his visits with a Sufi sheikh. All of this might not have been particularly well-liked by the more orthodox Islamic scholars, but there was really little they could do about it. And this is yet another indication of the way that reality differed from the portrait painted by the Seljuk propagandists. So that's basically Islam. But what about non-Muslims? Well, when it comes to non-Muslims, we unfortunately have a much less clear view. The Islamic historians, unfortunately, barely mention the Christians, Jews, Zoroastrians, and others who lived in the Seljuk domains. We have much better records for the neighboring Fatimid Caliphate of Egypt, where the famous Jewish scholar Maimonides resided in the 12th century, and where many works of Jewish and Christian authors have survived. But that said, we do have something of a view into the treatment of some non-Muslim minorities, namely Jews and Christians. Unfortunately, we don't know much about the other non-Muslim minorities, like the Zoroastrians or the Yazidis. I would love to know more, but unfortunately, just nothing has really come down to us. And while I say minorities, in some areas of the empire, these people would have actually been majorities, namely in parts of Syria, Iraq, and even Iran. And here again, we see a complicated picture. Tolerance mixed with oppression. To start with, in general, religious minorities in the Muslim world in the Middle Ages were tolerated. They generally did not face truly existential risks to their livelihood as religious minorities in parts of Europe did. Though I would note that the common view of medieval Europe as being intolerant is a bit of a simplification, as some parts of Europe, including the Byzantine Empire, were also fairly tolerant of religious minorities. In a pattern that is going to continue into the Ottoman era, these religious minorities were essentially governed through their religious elites. That is, the Seljuk state would recognize the leaders of these religious communities, the rabbis, the priests, the patriarchs, the Zoroastrian priests, and so on, and in essence, delegate to them the right to rule their religious communities. If you think about it, this is somewhat similar, in a sense, to the ulama 
having the right to interpret the Sharia. You're just giving the minority's priestly class the right to do the same thing. But another way to think about this is that the Seljuks basically set up the religious elites as temporal rulers of their flocks, which might not have been particularly welcomed by some of the members of those flocks. Yet the practice did allow religious minorities to continue to exist and basically practice their faith and live their lives according to the tenets of their religions. But while the existence of religious minorities was tolerated, we should not mistake that tolerance with equality. Non-Muslims face not only higher taxation, but a state that could become openly hostile. And we should never forget that life was overall much easier for Muslims than non-Muslims in the Seljuk Empire. Non-Muslims were also subject to sumptuary laws that forbade them from wearing certain clothing or consuming certain goods or requiring them to wear identifying articles of clothing. And for the elites among the non-Muslims, there was always a sort of background pressure to convert, especially if you wanted to rise in the bureaucracy. But that said, there were non-Muslim communities in the empire that were incredibly important, and indeed influential and powerful. Foremost among them were the Jews. Baghdad had been a center of Jewish learning and Jewish life basically ever since its foundation at the beginning of the Abbasid period. And the history of the Jews in Mesopotamia went back far beyond the foundation of the city, deep into the misty past. However, as the Jewish community in Fatimid Egypt came to the forefront, really becoming the leading Jewish community in the world, the Jewish community of Baghdad came to be eclipsed. Nevertheless, the rabbis in Baghdad continued to receive requests for advice and guidance from rabbis across the Muslim world throughout the Seljuk period. And the Baghdad Jewish community retained a certain level of prestige and wealth. A Jewish traveler and chronicler, a rabbi named Rabbi Benjamin of Tudela, wrote that there were 40,000 Jews in Baghdad and that they dwell in security, prosperity, and honor under the great caliph. Jews were found elsewhere in the empire as well, throughout Iraq, Iran, and throughout Khorasan, Balkh, and Transoxiana. Esfahan, where the chief rabbi of Iran was based, had 15,000 Jews according to the Jewish sources, while Samarkand was said to be home to a staggering 50,000 Jews. And some Jews did indeed rise to positions of political power in the Muslim world. We, of course, have records of Jews who converted to Islam and became powerful viziers, but we also see Jews keeping their faith and rising in the political system. In the narrative, we briefly mentioned a Jew named Ibn Alan, who the sources say possessed an ikta and was an ally of Nizam ul-Mulk. This strongly implies that he was a powerful state bureaucrat. So while Jews were certainly second-class citizens, there were powerful Jewish communities in the empire along with powerful Jews. But we also do see some evidence in some Jewish sources of conflict with the Seljuk state and even of revolt. The account of Rabbi Benjamin also mentions an extensive revolt against the Seljuks by a part of the Iraqi Jewish community led by a messianic Jewish figure named David Alroy. Benjamin relates that David preached and encouraged the revolt of the Jews against the Seljuk state, 
seriously alarming the Seljuk authorities, who began threatening the leader of the Jewish community in Baghdad, called the Exilarch. This ultimately led to David being murdered at the orders of the Exilarch and the Jewish community being forced to pay an indemnity to the Seljuk state. And as is unfortunately true basically everywhere in the world, there was of course a great deal of anti-Semitism. In our episode on the army, I read from the diary of the religious official Ibn al-Banna, while he also left us a poem, which was read during the birth of the son of the future Caliph al-Muqtadi, which read in part, May you ever remain in the glory of an army, which is served from on high by the good omen. O community of reciters of the Quran and the Shuhud, may the curse of God be on the Jews. And that is far from the only instance in the sources of such sentiments being voiced. So while you would definitely prefer to be a Jew in the Seljuk Empire over a Jew in medieval Europe, we should not pretend like life was necessarily easy or that there wasn't a constant undercurrent of vicious anti-Semitism. Our sources on the Christians are a bit worse than those on the Jews and so our view of Christian life under the Seljuk Empire is unfortunately a lot less clear. There were certainly large Christian population centers across the empire, in particular in Iraq and Syria, where Christians even formed a majority in certain areas. And there were also large Christian communities in Iran and in the east at this time. And of course in the Caucasus, on the fringes of the empire, Christians were not only in the majority, but also, in some cases, vassal rulers subject to the empire. Many Christians in the west of the empire were Suriani Christians, that is, Suraic Christians, but they were from three different sects, the Nestorians, the Melkites, and the Jacobites, and these sects seemed to have detested each other. Indeed, a lot of the surviving evidence about Christian life in the empire comes from records of these groups of Suriani Christians arguing about who should be the Catholicos or the Patriarch, the leader of the community, and appealing to the Sultans and the Seljuk state to intercede against their rival co-religionists. Indeed, far from being united against their Muslim overlords, the Christian communities of the empire mostly seem to have seen their Muslim overlords as potential allies in their bitter struggles with their real enemies other groups of their fellow Christians. As with the Jews, it does seem that the Christians, at least in Iraq, were generally economically fairly well off. There are a lot of references to Christian doctors and scholars. And as with the Jews, there are also records of Christians converting to Islam and then rising through the bureaucracy. There were a decent number of Seljuk bureaucrats and viziers who came from Christian backgrounds. But unlike with the Jews, where conversion seems to have remained an elite phenomenon limited to men who wanted to get ahead, we do see evidence of increasing conversion of the common Christian people to Islam. Indeed, the Seljuk period in Iraq and Syria is marked by the beginning of a fatal decline in the region's Christian population. While Christianity would remain an important religion in these areas well into the modern era, and the Christian communities would continue to exist, the conversion of Arab and Assyrian Christians into Islam clearly began to accelerate, and large areas with Christian majorities in Iraq and Syria would soon be a thing of the past. But at the same time, 
it would be a mistake to paint too grim of a picture of Christian life. In the Caucasus, the Seljuks were actually seen pretty favorably by the Georgian Christians in particular. The Georgian Chronicle writes of Melik Shah, both by the unequaled extent of his empire, as well as by charming demeanor and kindness, he was the most excellent of men. His innumerable other virtues are known, his justice, mercy, and love for the Christians. Indeed, there is really only one instance of the Seljuks requiring the conversion of a Christian king in the Caucasus. Other than that, Seljuk overlordship actually saw an advance of Georgian Christianity and even a strengthening of the Georgian monarchy. And in Iraq, Syria, and Iran, the Seljuk era also saw a great revival of Suriani Christian culture. There was a flowering of Suriani literature, poetry, and even theology and philosophy. Some modern scholars have even called the period a Suriani Renaissance. I've already quoted at length from the Suriani chronicler Bar Hebreus. Well, he wasn't the only Christian intellectual living and working in the empire. Under the Seljuks, public debates between Suryanis and Sunni Muslims as to the rightness of their faiths became commonplace and apparently quite popular with the educated urban elites. And the Nestorian patriarch even wrote a great treatise defending and justifying Christianity in an attempt to convert Jews, Muslims, and Christians of other sects to Nestorian Christianity, which is quite astounding for this time. Try to imagine a Muslim scholar doing something like that in most of Europe at the same time. It's just inconceivable. Even more interesting to me is that there seems to have been missionary activity by the Nestorian Christians among the Turks. Probably already knowing the popularity of Nestorian Christianity on the steppe, and having seen with their own eyes the power of the Turks, the Baghdad Nestorian community dispatched bishops to the east to convert the Turks. Now, this didn't really come to anything, but it does show to me that even as they lived as second-class citizens in the empire, the Christians were still free enough to proselytize and even confident enough to dream of converting their overlords. And that's quite something by the standards of the Middle Ages. So overall, the picture of the life of minority religions in the empire is pretty positive for the Middle Ages. While they were certainly not considered to be the equals of the Muslims, and they faced discrimination, pressure to convert, and bouts of persecution, they were treated comparatively well and the Seljuk era saw both a flowering of Christian and Jewish life, right alongside religious conflict and indeed occasional persecution. And in general, the picture that the Seljuk propagandists paint of vigorous and strident Sunni orthodoxy is at best incomplete. Reality was far messier. There was not only conflict between the Seljuk and Abbasid dynasties, but among the Sunni madhabs themselves, and the treatment of Shia, Sufis, and the minority religions was both varied and far different than what a Sunni fanatic would have you believe. So that wraps up our discussion of religion, almost. See, as I was preparing this episode, there was one part of it that just started ballooning out of size. And ultimately, I decided that rather than cut stuff, I'd give it its proper due and just break it out and make a mini-episode out of it. So next time, 
we're going to discuss the other great religious revolution that occurred in the Seljuk Empire. The emergence of one of the most fascinating and misunderstood sects of Islam, the Shia Ismaili Nizaris, often called the Assassins. <laughs> 